Welcome to Friars and Film. We are three Catholic priests from the Order of Preachers, and we're here, as always, to talk about the movies. All right, welcome everybody back to the podcast. We're looking at Days of Heaven today, a 1978 film by Terrence Malick, a grand film, as is typical with him. One of the reasons it's such a, a big movie is it's drawing on biblical motifs. So it starts out with a murder, which is a, a kind of allusion to Cain and Abel. And there's a plague. There is talk of, a, of the final conflagration. So there's reference to the final judgment as well. The more centrally, there is this allusion to the, the sister story vis-a-vis a powerful man. So the reference to Abraham, first of all, when Abraham is in Egypt, he presents Sarah as his sister in order to avoid being murdered by the people in power there, by the, by the Pharaoh and his administration. Now, what people may not understand about this illusion is that this sort of thing happens in the book of Genesis three times. Abraham and Sarah do it twice, first with the Pharaoh and then with another potentate called Abimelech. And then it's repeated with Isaac and Rebekah, again with Abimelech. Each time it happens, there are little differences. For example, the third one between Isaac and Rebekah, um, Abimelech sees Isaac caressing Rebekah from a window. And that's actually how the farmer in the film, or that's one of the ways he begins to understand the true relationship between the man and the woman. And actually, the other two means of discovery are also present in the film. When they're in Egypt, in the first instance, it's a plague that reveals the the true identity of Sarah. And then in the second instance, it's a dream that reveals who Sarah is. And I think, I can't remember the exact how this works in the movie, but dreams or, or what goes on during the sleep of the farmer reveals who his wife really is. So I, I think about how this, this movie came about. Why did Malik want to make this movie? And here's my proposal. One can imagine him reading the book of Genesis and seeing this episode, this scenario, happen three times. And you can imagine him wondering... Why is this strange uh, scenario so important in the first book of the Bible? What is the meaning of this little drama? Uh, One way to sort of feel that out and to, to get a sense of it is to place it in a more proximate context. So he places it in a modern context. It's not terribly modern, but when, when the U.S. is unsettled enough to have you know, some kind of uh, vagabond drifter scenario like with Abraham and, and Sarah. So if that is sort of how this movie begins, if that's the premise, how does it end? I mean, what, is, what does Malik discover about this biblical scene episode? First, Father Allen, I want to say you are very well prepared for this episode. <laughs> I commend you. You have reflected and you've given us your notes. 
It's a good, I'll give one more biblical thing than answer that question. So you had asked this previously, and I'm not positive about this, but I did look up the origin of the title itself. Um, okay. Days of Heaven. Apparently that, that appears in King James Version, uh, or as they say, the authorized version. And it is, it is Moses who is telling the people in Deuteronomy chapter 11 that if they keep the Lord's law... He says that your days may be multiplied, the days of your children in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them as the days of heaven upon the earth. And then also it's from Psalm 89, uh, that his seed I will also to make endure. This is the Messiah and his throne as the days of heaven. You know, a great length of days, goodness, that you can dwell on the land God promises you for as long as God himself lives. And, you know... Which, of course, sadly, doesn't come true in the Bible except for the fact of of the kingdom of heaven, not just this land, this holy land. It's transposed to the heavenly Jerusalem. So you're right. I mean, Malik is working with these biblical themes. You can also see in the plague some of Moses or even the beginning murder when he murders his boss. That's how Moses' story begins. I agree he's, he's... using these common biblical themes. And I do think one of those themes I will add is the land itself, which is such a prominent theme, and which I think is the best part of this film, is that I don't know of another movie where you're so close to wheat and harvesters and the stream running through, and you spend so much time at sunrise and sunset, even so much that this this was one of the first films ever which used just purely natural lighting. So I, I do think that's a biblical and a theme of the movie. As, as, as you're saying, what is Malik trying to say? Is he trying to work through these themes? Is he trying to resolve them? I don't know. He took two years editing this movie. It was a second movie because he, tr- he had trouble stringing even the plot or the narrative together. So I'm not sure... I, I've seen this movie twice. I don't really like the conclusion. You know, he's they run away. He, he, he kills the farmer. He's caught. He's killed. And the wife gets the inheritance. I mean, I, I think for good reason, this movie won Best Cinematography in its camera work. And for good reason, it wasn't nominated for much else. Because I do think these biblical themes applied to the Texas panhandle is interesting but I don't know. I don't know if it uh, is is coherent. What is he getting at? What is Malik's conclusion? What is he saying about Abraham or Moses? I'm not sure, honestly. I think he's saying that there are some parallels between these ancient scenarios and modern scenarios that our life is not so separate from things in the Bible. I do think you know, this guy's kind of a con artist giving his wife over, versus this real sort of ancient thing that Abraham and Isaac do. So, but I, I, that, that's my point, I guess, that what I take away, whether Malik meant that exactly or not, that human life is actually has, is, is similar to how it used to be a very long time ago. But I don't know if I, I have a clear takeaway, if that makes sense. I don't know if he does. I also found it, um, yeah, to be a little bit incoherent in my, this is my very first viewing of it. And, uh, and it was definitely, I, f- I remember finishing it feeling pretty unsatisfied and, um, just confused as to what it was that he was trying to trying to say with it. However, um, I think even just already, just simply hearing both of you 
allude to and touch on and illustrate the different uh, biblical themes that are on play here. Um, one thing that really does jump out at, out at me is is uh, the contrast between being a person on the move and then being someone who is rooted on the land. And of course, that's a deeply biblical theme. Um, of course, if we're alluding to Abraham, if we're alluding to Moses, then like you were just doing, Father Timothy, I mean, we're immediately alluding to questions of the land, of the promise of the land. Um, and so we're seeing the, you know, the, the, the contrast between someone like Abraham, who is initially a wanderer, but he was called to, invited to become someone rooted in the land, the land, namely the land of Israel. Um, and then it's about the difficulty of doing that. And you see that throughout the Bible, it's difficult to remain rooted on the land. You're often becoming a, and someone in exile from the land, having to be a journeyer, even though you, you want to be the recipient of the promised land. And similarly here, you know, we have, um, yeah, all the people who are arriving by train, who are all wanderers, they're all journeyers, they're journeying, journeying laborers. And, um, and yet they have a desire to be rooted in that land, which is a land of prosperity, which symbolized like it is in the biblical world um, by the grain fields. And of course, then you have this, uh, the fellow who, um, you know, who's the proprietor of that land. And he's sort of the image of, of the settled life. And they all idolize that life. They look up to that life and they wish that they could live that settled, rooted life in this remarkable little house there on the grain field. And they try to do so. However, it's only through that this kind of strange lie that they that they connive, um, like Abraham, like Isaac, and um, it works for a while, but ultimately they find themselves having to become journeyers again. And to me, what that speaks speaks to is just that yeah, all of us long to be rooted, and yet find ourselves unable to be anything more than a, a wandering traveler. Uh, because of, I, I would suggest, um, the, the the brokenness you know that is within the human, the human uh, predicament. I'd add a single sentence, Father Luke, that as has been said by many commentators on Malik, all of his characters are wanderers. That that is a mm -hmm. that theme endures. Yeah, right. Just as the you know when we talked about this just a minute, just a little bit ago in the thin red line, just as the theme of the the natural world. It is a huge theme of his. So, um, yeah, these themes of wandering and then the world in which you desire to be settled but end up being a wanderer, those are, those are big for him. And frankly, both are biblical themes. I'm not saying he's only drawing his work from the Bible, but the land no, and this yeah. earth is a huge biblical theme. So is not only in the Old Testament of all the patriarchs, but even Hebrews. You know, we are strangers and wanderers upon this earth searching for a kingdom, etc. So, right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, one of the big differences between the Abraham story and this story, the movie, is that in the Bible, in each of those little scenarios, things turn out really well. So after the king or potentate finds out that Sarah or Rebecca is already married, he doesn't kill, he doesn't try to punish the husband. He actually somewhat strangely rewards them. So Abraham walks away from both of those difficult situations, not only alive, but actually wealthier than he was. So he, it's peacefully resolved. He also forms a covenant. That was one of his first covenants before, you know, not only with God, but with Abimelech. They oh, okay. basically okay. join tribes, you know. Which is in stark contrast with what happens in the movie, 
where both men end up getting killed. So, you know, what is Malik saying there? Um, Maybe something like this, that whereas in the Old Testament, the idea of the land being temporary or at least only tenuously possessed was something that developed. As you read the Old Testament, you realize, wow, the, the land is really slippery. You know, the people only enjoy it intermittently and conditionally and by the time of the New Testament, you realize that actually the land is not quite the complete object of our hope. I mean, I think, humanly speaking, that it probably wasn't a good idea for the little girl to leave school. But theologically, I guess that that kind of makes sense. You know, one of the suggestive things that she says there at the end is maybe we'll find a character She's sort of following this older girl, and and she doesn't know where she's going. And she says, maybe we'll run into a character, like an interesting person, who will kind of give us something to do. Maybe something will happen to us. Maybe we'll be taken up into some some important story, even if that's kind of unrealistic, you know, in that girl's case. But but I think it also made me... feel like, yeah, this is an American film, right? Because uh, in addition to all the biblical themes, there's also just, just the themes of, uh, of it being a film set in America and therefore having some American references and therefore just uh, these uh, characters who are, who are travelers and uh, they're, they're also manipulators, they're players in a sense. Um, these all kind of summed up, to, uh, reminded me of, of the, the Huck Finn story, right? And uh, of those other early American uh, uh, films that are just just about tricking somebody into getting something that from them that you want, like like the Sting. Uh, but but yeah, but the, the the biggest one I think is just that yeah, to to be an American is in a sense to be on the move and not not to want to be someone who's settled. Something that kind of perplexes me is that I've as big of a Terrence Malick fan as I am, I've always kind of shied away from his first two films. And this movie's made me reflect on why, not just because... I mean, remember the 20-year gap. He he made first Badlands, uh, which was about kind of a modern-day Bonnie and Clyde, you know, on the road, shooting up people. Then you have this one, these con artists on the farm. Then there's a 20-year gap before he does Thin Red Line. And... I've always kind of started at Thin Red Line and moved forward, and I think some of that was because I'm confused by why Malick's first two films basically focus on criminals. I don't have an answer for that, but it it is worth just saying that clearly, that compared to all of his other films, it's, it's not just biblical themes or American themes. He also is focusing on criminal activity in his first two films. And maybe some of that's because he's beginning out. I remember going to creative writing classes, and it's like every time you try to write your first short story, there's got to be like a gun and whiskey, and you drop some cuss words. <laughs> it's almost like, it's like, because that's like how stories are, you know? And then you yeah. can later get into more mature material where you don't just have like these elements added in. I, I'm not saying he, but it is kind of strange. Terrence Malick began with sort of like this. This quiet philosophical guys focusing on criminals, and I think that's why they're still not my favorite topics. But that is kind of just true about his process as a writer that he's 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 making them criminals. You know, of course, of course. I mean, all the rest other films, even though they're not about criminals per se, 
he kind of continues with that general theme of uh, just the broken experience of the human soul, you know, and just, so you have people who are, who are just experiencing their own internal criminal criminality, you know, if you will. Um, but I just want to ask you as a, uh, Father Timothy, as a, a Malik uh, expert. Yes, of course. What would you like to know? <laughs> I'm just sort of a, a Malik enthusiast. Um, but yeah, you're, you're kind of the resident expert. So yeah, wait, wait, do you know what Malik did in those 20 years? He did. He worked on a couple different projects. Um, one of those was going to be a Walker Percy's, you know, his novel, The Movie Goer. They wanted to do a movie on that. He worked on this Japanese script. I think essentially um, he took a lot of time off for reading. He had gone through two other marriages. There were a lot of personal things happening. And whatever, he was getting involved almost with some Broadway stuff. But I think there was this tension of him wanting to do this thing called Project Q, which we had talked about. It became the tree of life, but he had this, he got hung up on this idea of the perfect movie about like the origins of the universe and the the human family and gods and deities. Like, you know, the only thing he had, his opening scene was like a Norse god underwater and a neon yellow fish swims into its nostril. Like very weird but he had this idea of sort of mythology and human stories and science. I, I, it really was uh, that idea that he became possessed of early, which made him abandon a lot of other projects during those 20 years, and he didn't finish anything. And actually, when they finally brought him on board and, he, and he made The Thin Red Line, which we did, that was a whole uh, game of keeping the fish on the line because he almost backed out of that many times as well. It seemed like once he got that and got back into film, he, he, he finally got some momentum. Yeah, mm-hmm. But it is really curious. But I, I do think what... I'm not saying his earlier films are cut off from his later ones. I do think his themes and his camera work and his style, surprisingly after 20 years, carries right over. One, one last thing that I noticed... This time, and I'd never, I'd never thought of this before because I always say, "Oh, Malik," and we all notice this. Oh, he he uses the camera differently than other filmmakers. He doesn't tell so much of a plot. Um, sure, those are those are very unique things to his style. But I also thought of narration. See, his first show or his first movie, Badlands, was narrated, but the second one I was reading. Uh, Days of Heaven wasn't, and that's actually when he was trying to piece together the scenes and couldn't do it, he then later on added the younger sister's narration to basically tie the movie together. So he wasn't bound from the start to narration, but that made me think that from this second movie onwards, he does not do a film without voiceovers and narrations. And I, I never noticed how rare that is for a filmmaker to always have that element in addition to dialogue, addition to camera work. So that was a light bulb went off to say that this was the movie in terms of Malick's spree of movies where narration almost wasn't used because it wasn't seen as necessary, but it became necessary for Malick's long-term craft, I think. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the more interesting things about this movie. In a sense, the action takes place between the two men and the, and the woman, but... By the end of it, you're wondering whether the protagonist hasn't been the girl the entire time. 
because she does kind of tie the images together. You know, she's like the consciousness of the film and everything else is just kind of like the sense data. I almost want to say that Days of Heaven is like her little experience of living on the farm. She kind of knew, I mean, she had to have known, or maybe you can surmise that she did, that that, that wasn't really their that wasn't really their home. You know, they didn't really belong there. It was kind of like they won the jackpot for a second, and then maybe she also knew that this probably wasn't going to work out because the, the, the farmer was sick. So, you know, that must just seem like an episode, a kind of a strange little happy time in her life. It's the moment where she was the most stable in her kind of adolescence and her time as a young adult. But even that, even that was, was a time of passing through so she she really only knows passing through she's she's like almost thoroughly just a transient figure and but but it's her point of view that i i really think is the point of view of the movie so in the end if that is the principle of unity if that is the bottom line of the movie the question arises is this true or not is this kind of a role model? Do you want to follow this? Is this the kind of child who speaks wisdom in, in the gospel, for example? Children are sort of vehicles of divine wisdom. Uh, she's obviously a symbol of hope. You know, she's thinking about the future. One of the criticisms you could make of Malik is that it's, it's escapism, and it doesn't really have any... Um, it doesn't say anything. It's just kind of nice pictures. You know, th- this is what someone might say. Um, and, and so I, I wonder if that criticism isn't particularly pressing here with this movie. I, I think that's fair. And, um, yeah, I think that, uh, that, that was really kind of my come away initial experience of the movie was that it really did feel like a bunch of pretty pictures, um, with not a whole lot to say behind it. Um, it's interesting just to think a little bit about the girl and, um, I don't have very many thoughts to offer on that to add to what you've already said, but uh, both of you. But one thing is just that I think she kind of stole the show in terms of just the quality of that actor's portrayal and just her role as as a as a character in the film. I just she just did a great job, and her um, <laughs> her voiceover was just really priceless yeah. in many many moments. Yeah. Um, one thing that just occurs to me, and again, I don't really know what to do with this, but with this observation, but. I mean, it's just interesting that Malik chooses to include her as a character at all, just because, um, you know, in the Isaac and Abraham stories, there is no sister that he's also traveling with. Um, it's just he's with his wife and he says that he says that she is my sister. Whereas here we have the man and the wife and he says she's my sister. But in addition to that, we also have the actual sister, <laughs> you know, so it's just interesting that she's there as in a sense, the true version of what the wife is, right? She, I mean, she really is the sister. Um, so she just kind of adds a, a la- another, another dimension to it all. And yeah, maybe that is to say that she is supposed to represent the um, sort of the honest route um, in the movie. But again, I don't I don't even know. There's a whole lot to back up that, uh, so, yeah. Well, um, should I, we move on to um, Nosferatu now? I feel like Nosferatu is just a natural seg. <laughs> yeah. Does that seem good to you? So we'll be jumping from the Texas panhandle among wheat harvesters to uh, old vampire film, right? 
mm-hmm. like 1922, actually. Which, so we're going way back. 100 years ago. Actually, I, that's true. We're almost the 100th anniversary. My last point on this film, which is I think will connect to that, is about feel. This is very simple, but um, I imagine if we're going to go to a vampire film, there's going to be a whole atmosphere about it. But that is that is my one takeaway from this film, is that I, I think with every Malick film, I think this is sort of his earlier, more immature work. But it, it does have a good feel. You know, it's... I uh, I never regret, you know, spending an hour and a half on, on this land with harvesters. It almost feels like, you know, you get to spend more... You know, everyone loves that painting. What's the one by uh, Jean-Francois Millet, the, the Angelus... Where the man and woman are in the field, oh, yeah. they're kneeling at sunset, and that kind of work. Or I think too of uh, do you remember the part in T. S. Eliot's Four Quartets, where I think it's in East Coker, he bases this kind of on the ghosts of his ancestors. Remember that they, they had that in the movie, the Harvest Festival with the fire and people dancing. It reminded me of that Eliot thing where he's talking about on a summer midnight, you could hear the weak pipe and the little drum, matrimony signifying concord. You ever hear Elliot uh, read that on YouTube? It's it's both like annoying and amazing. He's like, "Earth feet, loam feet, feet long since under earth." It's just <laughs> like, is that your, is that is that your voice, T.S. Eliot? Um, but there's sort of American British. I just think there's something good from our regular days to step out, you know, like like he would in the English countryside vision or like paintings. There's there's something interesting in getting a little closer to the earth, we who live in cities, and that to me is my kind of... I think for many viewers that was their main takeaway, that visually uh, the movie did that. Especially, well, compared to sev- especially compared to its contemporaries in the 70s, I don't think there's anything like quite like that. Right. Yeah. I, I remember thinking, you know, maybe maybe the one driving force of this whole movie, the whole creative vision, was just Malick seeing that little farmhouse across some grain field or other on some road trip and being like, man, I would love to just do a whole movie that's based there. But speaking of which, Father Luke, cool story about the novelist Cormac McCarthy. He wrote the book The Road about father and son traveling mm-hmm. across apocalyptic U.S. to the beach. Yeah. And apparently he got the image for that. He was in a hotel at night with his son, and he just had there was this thunderstorm like right outside the window. And just, just that moment, he's like, here I am, father and son in a storm. He's like, I just got a book idea. Like, it all came no to way. Me. Yeah. <laughs> wow. All right. But I, I'm, I'm not saying Nosferatu is only going to be atmospheric. We'll, 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 it'll be a shallow, atmospheric, oh. spooky we'll film. We'll get to the bottom of it. We'll get to it. Okay. Until then. Peace. Until then. Peace. Until then.